So here now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the sixth chapter of Luke, we are going to be focusing on the 22nd and 23rd verses, but I'm going to read verses 22, 20 through 23. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word, our exposition of this word this morning. May he truly illuminate our hearts. Let's ask him to do just that. Our dear Lord, as we delve into this very paradoxical um, beatitude, uh, be blessed because people hate us. Help us to understand the way that it is meant, what you are telling us, and, and actually the, the glorious truth that is, surrounds this. Uh, help us to delve into the depth of this, to see where our true blessing lies, and where we can turn when you tell us to rejoice in the midst of persecution, and how we can actually accomplish that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as so many Christians over the centuries have been, I have been blessed by the reading of a story written by a pastor imprisoned for 12 years in the middle of the 17th century. His name was John Bunyan, and of course, you know, the allegory that he wrote was Pilgrim's Progress. Um, and it's the kind of story that sort of gets under your skin, and I think the reason why is because it's sort of our story. It's a story of a pilgrim. But I was reading a, a biography of Charles Spurgeon, and I was interested to see that he said he'd probably read Pilgrim's Progress at least a hundred times. I was watching a seminar by um, Dr. Derek Thomas, who is sort of the scholar-in-residence of John Bunyan for the Ligonier Ministries, and he said that he first read the story when he was a teenager, just after he was saved, getting ready to go to college, and he had read it every year since then, at least once a year. So I don't feel so bad for having read it a couple of times over the um, in, in recent memory. Um, and, and I want to talk about a particular aspect of it. Um, as you read through it, if, and by the way, if you don't know the story of Pilgrim's Progress, shame on you. You ought to get the book and read it. It's one of the great stories of uh, Christianity. And um, it it's never been out of print ever since the middle of the 17th century, and some people think that this might just be the first generation that it actually does go out of print because people are losing interest in great stories like this. But nonetheless, it's the story of a man, Pilgrim, um, his name is, doesn't start out being Christian, but they, it, it becomes Christian, um, and his journey um, towards the celestial city, which is his journey to heaven. Now, on his way 
way in this pilgrimage, he runs into a whole bunch of people. Some of them are good people, like the gatekeeper, the evangelist, the, the interpreter. Others are evil people who want to do him harm. But I noticed, as I read through it, I've noticed a repetition. Now, as a student of the Bible, and someone who spends a lot of time in the Bible, I've been trained to look for these kinds of things in stories, to look for repetition, because usually repetition means something. So I have noticed, as I have read through Pilgrim's Progress, a a, a repetition, but I really didn't figure out what it was for. I didn't really give much credence to it until this week when I was preparing for this message and I was looking at all four of these Beatitudes and and what Jesus is saying by them, suddenly it dawned on me what the repetition of a particular question and answer in the Pilgrim's Progress is all about. Let me give you an example. When he meets Apollyon, this happens all the way through the book, but when he meets Apollyon in the, in the Valley of Humiliation and he's getting ready to do mortal combat, this is a devil figure, uh, an evil person. And he's going to do mortal combat and it's going to be a, a lot of spiritual warfare. Well, Apollyon asks him this question when he first meets him. From where have you come and where are you going? Now, Christian answers the same way as he answers every time this question is answered. Asked him. He says, I have come from that place of all evil, the city of destruction. And I am going to the city of Zion. In other words, I have left a city that is doomed, that is destined for destruction. And everyone who is in that city is going to be destroyed. I have left that city and I'm on a pilgrimage. And my pilgrimage will take me to the celestial city, the place where God is, the place of eternal bliss and glory. That is my destination. Now, now, brothers and sisters, the reason I'm bringing this out is because I think those are two concepts that every Christian should keep in the forefront of their minds. Not something that is buried deep. Not something that you only think about on Sundays or when you read a story in the Bible about it. But something that directs you and guides you. That you remember where you have come from. And that you remember where you are going. Now, the book doesn't just tell you that, because actually I believe that's the secret to rejoicing in the midst of persecution, if those two things are on the forefront of your mind. But the book also kind of maps out for you how you're going to figure it out. In other words, how you're going to get to your destination and how it was that you left the city of destruction. Let me read for you from Pilgrim's Progress the famous first paragraph. Uh, you, you hear this read quite a bit because it's going to map it out for us. So uh, uh, just indulge me as I read this paragraph. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where was a den. And I laid me down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. I dreamed, and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place with his face from his own house, a book in his hand and a great burden upon his back. I looked, and I saw him open the book and read therein. And as he read, he wept and trembled. And not being able longer to contain, he broke out with a lamentable lamentable cry, saying, What shall I do? Now, I, I read that for two reasons. 
one reason, did, did you see the Beatitudes in there? Did, did you happen to see the reference of everything that we've been studying over the last couple of weeks? In other words, he sees in the beginning of this dream a man who is poor. He's poor in spirit. He's in rags. And he is leaving a city that is a city bound for destruction. If he stays in the city, he dies because everyone in that city is going to be destroyed. But because he opened the book, because he read in the book and he realizes from the book that he must leave that city, now his face is, is, is in another direction. He is headed towards the celestial city. Now, what was it that convicted him of his sin? What was it that made him know that he has a burden on his back? And what is it that drives him with a hunger towards the city of Zion? It's the book, folks. The same book that we're reading. It's the Bible. And I believe that kind of woven through that is the secret to true rejoicing in the midst of the most extraordinary persecution and trouble. And that's what I hope to bring out because I believe that is also exactly what Jesus is telling us in these Beatitudes. Now, we've already been through the first three. This is the fourth. And when we've started out each week, we've started out with the definition of that first word. The most important word in the Beatitudes is the word after which it is named. The first one, blessed, makarios in the Greek. It is a word that speaks of a state of being. It's not something to achieve. And this isn't an attitude we're trying to adopt. But this is Jesus describing to us what it means to be a kingdom dweller. In other words, all of humanity is poor in their, uh, in their spiritual sense. Spiritually bankrupt. Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It, it, it is a poverty, a spiritual poverty. Now, what makes though that a blessing? state is not because they are spiritually poor, but because they recognize it. And now recognizing that they cannot possibly pull themselves out of that spiritual destitution, they have turned to God and asked for his mercy. And that mercy is what drives them forward. So once again, it is a blessedness based on a state of being. Well, we notice in the next two of those um, Beatitudes, well, the first one being blessed are those who are hungry or blessed are you if you hunger because it's not hungering for food, it's hungering for God. And blessed are you if you weep because it's not weeping because of any other reason, but you're weeping because of your own sinfulness. Well, both of those don't happen unless you know God, unless you're converted, unless you're born again because no one seeks after God, not even one. So everyone who who truly hungers after God and hungers for his righteousness and hungers for the celestial city, every one of those people has been converted. So Jesus is explaining, you're blessed. You're blessed because you hunger after God and you're blessed because you're mortified over your sins. Because if you're mortified over your sins, that means that you're saved. Well, now we have the fourth of the Beatitudes. It starts out the same way. But it is the most paradoxical of all of them. It just seems to be upside down. So let's take a look at it and see what we read. Verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you. Blessed are you when people hate you? I mean, is this the kind of thing? You know, I I gave you a quote last week from Steve Brown. And, you know, Steve Brown said the reason he believes in Christianity, one of the reasons is because no one could have made this up. 
I mean, who would make this up? Okay, what a recruiting tool this is. I mean, a lot of the scholars, the skeptical scholars say, you know, that this was created by a bunch of religious fanatics in the first century and they all made this up and they created this aura around Jesus and they wrote this all out. Well, I mean, who's going to sign up for this? Okay, hey, well, listen, join in and be part of us. Everyone in the world's going to hate you. Okay, it's a lot of fun. Come on, enjoy us. It, it's, it's, it's completely upside down. It doesn't make any sense unless it is seen in a spiritual basis. And so, therefore, the, the very understanding of this uh, is a, um, a, a paradox. Uh, but it's a paradox that's going to make sense for us in just a minute when we look at it in the way that we should look at it. And so, Jesus says, blessed are you with people hate you. Now, that word, that, that word we need to get in, we, we need to understand. In fact, we've done that with every single one of these Beatitudes. We have taken the words that Jesus says, and we've looked into the words, because in those words, we get a better understanding of what he is talking about. Now, what does it mean to hate To hate someone in this sense. Hate is actually a word in scripture that can be used in a couple of different ways. But let's just kind of stick to the way that it actually is used here. To hate someone is an emotional impulse. It is something that comes from a sort of a twisted heart or a twisted soul. The idea of this kind of hatred. It is what surfaces on the outside. It is an emotional impulse of envy or enmity to abhor something or someone or actually to reject it. Now, in the context that it is being used here, it speaks of a negative emotion, a malevolence against the saints of God, against those that Jesus has just defined in the first three Beatitudes. Because you fit that mold, because these have defined the state that you are in, you will be hated. Now, Jesus is just telling what he already knows because everyone has already shown him that. Luke 21, he says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. In other words, you're going to be hated because you are born again followers of Jesus Christ. But this isn't just an idle hate. It's not a hate that just stays on the inside and people don't express it in some way. This is a hatred with intent. This is a hatred that boils over and takes action. And so it is a hatred that leads to persecution. Now, even though Luke doesn't use that word, Matthew does. And that is exactly what we are talking about. We are talking about a persecution that occurs because of a deep-seated hatred of the kingdom of God, of Jesus, and anyone who follows it. We can continue reading. Jesus spells this out in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, sometimes, granted, hatred is used in different ways in Scripture. Remember, Jesus told you that if you can't be my disciple unless you hate your mother and father. Uh, and so we, we want to make sure that we see it in the way it's used, which is that feeling of intense malevolence 
with the desire to do something about it. It is the kind of hatred that will indeed lead to persecution and to suffering as we will see in a moment. Um, it, It is an intensity. And by the way, notice that this is also, in a sort of a backhanded way, another of the proofs that there is a conversion that has occurred, that he is speaking to those who have been born again. Because just like no one hungers after God unless they've been born again, and no one weeps for their sins unless they've been born again, no one gets hated for Jesus' sake unless they've been born again. I mean, if you're of the world, the world loves you and looks after its own. There's no reason for the world to hate you. But if you follow Jesus, Jesus is saying the world will indeed hate you. And this is a hatred that will actually take a shape in persecution. Now, what he does next is he goes on and he sort of spells out for us three, not this isn't comprehensive, but three ways that this hatred manifests itself. This is the way that the world is going to treat you if you follow me. Okay? It is going to exclude you, and then it is going to revile you, and then it is going to spurn your name or scorn your name as evil. Let's take those individually. The first one is that as an expression of their hatred, the world is going to exclude you. And we tend to do that. That's kind of grounded in our fallen human nature, isn't it? We, we, we like to exclude people we don't like or, or who make us nervous or look different than we do in, in whatever way. We, we, we like to exclude people. But I think that Jesus here is speaking more of a specific exclusion, an exclusion that is going to bring suffering as the result. For instance, right up front, remember he's talking to his disciples. He's in a Jewish um, uh, group of people for the most part. And so therefore, if you follow me and the world hates you, the first thing that's going to happen to you is that you will be excluded from the synagogue. And and this is something the Jews didn't want because in every town there was a synagogue and the synagogue was the center of all things Hebrew. Hebrew. I mean, everything happened at the synagogue. To be excluded from the synagogue was not something that most people would want. And and, and in fact, you may remember from John 9, remember the story when Jesus healed the man born blind? And the Pharisees got so upset that they thought that he was faking it. And they called the parents in and said, is this your son? Was he blind? And the parents didn't really want to respond because they knew that the Jews had already made it clear that anyone who confesses Jesus as Lord gets thrown out or excluded from the synagogue. Pretty soon, the man born blind is going to be excluded. John 12, we read that even some of the authorities, some of the high mucky mucks were believing in Jesus, but they were afraid for anyone to know it because if they did state it, they would be excluded from the temple and from the synagogue. But this is not something that just stopped with the Jews. I mean, we see this as we go through the New Testament, and we see it in the writings of the early church fathers. When people followed Jesus, when they professed him, when they were the born again, then they were excluded. You might be excluded from a guild. It's kind of like a, a, a union is today. But if you were a craftsman in metalwork or woodwork or whatever, you didn't work unless 
because it was through the guild. To be kicked out of the guild was to be excluded from the only way you had of making money. You would be excluded from the temple. You would be excluded from the feast. You would be excluded even from your family depending on what that family was. And so there was a a poverty. In fact, many of those early collections that they took on behalf of other churches were because of the poverty that had had occurred because of exclusion. So this is a very real, it's a prophecy actually, of something that is definitively going to happen. And you know, it still happens today. Um, Pastor Sidwan used to tell me in Haiti of children who came to know the Lord from families that were wrapped up in voodoo and they would be kicked outside and they would be raised right there in Pastor Sidwan's home. If you're a Mormon, I spent some time out in Salt Lake City making a video for a ministry that was trying to lead people to Christ right in the middle of a Mormon neighborhood. Well, if you're a Mormon and you convert to Christianity, you're excluded. In other words, you're excluded from their temple. And and everything happened at the temple, whether it was weddings or funerals. Your own parents died and had their funeral. You couldn't go because you had been excluded. If you're working for somebody, chances are you're going to get fired. If you have a business, chances are no one's going to buy from you anymore. You were excluded from all society. And of course, in certain Muslim countries, it is the epitome. It's the worst kind of infidel who is a Muslim and converts to Christianity And in some places in the world, you lose your life for that. So therefore, exclusion, the kind of exclusion that Jesus is talking about is a real persecution. Whether it's financial, emotional, or physical, there is a persecution that is going to come from that. Well, he goes on. And the next one that he talks about is the... um, the, the the reviling you will be reviled now the meaning of revile is is a, 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 a it's a, it's wrapped around the words that someone says it's just something that is usually verbal it, it is to heap verbal insults upon somebody to reproach revile or mock someone to find fault in the someone in the may that demeans them to heap on insults upon them with the intent of shaming them, okay? Unfortunately, this is something that Jesus suffered his entire life, whether it was Nathaniel, his own disciple, saying, does anyone, anything good come from Nazareth? To the horrible reviling that he went through on the cross Mark puts it this way, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Jesus was reviled all through his life. So that means that the word has the connotation of an aggressive. It's not to think bad about somebody. It's not just to talk about them behind their back. It's to get in their face and tell them what you think about them. Okay? It is to revile them publicly, to heap insults on them with the intention of shaming them. And so Jesus tells his disciples and those who will follow him, the world is going to hate you. And one of the ways this is going to take place is they're going to revile you. They are going to heap these insults on you. And it seems like when this word is used, especially in the New Testament, that this is something that exists between the wicked and the righteous. In fact, it's actually a word that can go either way. In other words, the wicked revile the righteous.
righteous because of their righteousness, where the righteous denounce, same word, just translated differently, denounce the wicked. So there's a sense of judgment in the righteous to the wicked, but a sense of anger and hatred and demeaning from the wicked to the righteous. And so it is a uh, a, a sort of an in-your-face kind of word. Now, the third thing that Jesus said, here's the third way that um, people will, um, will hate you in this world, and that's to spurn your name as evil. And it's an interesting word because it kind of carries the idea of both of the previous words with it. In other words, the word that is used for spurn, it could also mean scorn. It, it, it means to cast out physically. Now, we talked about excluding, you know, but that doesn't carry with it of picking someone up bodily and throwing them in the street. Well, that's the kind of idea this is. The, the word is, is talking about literally casting something out. And when you talk about the name of someone, you should know by now that what we're talking about is the, the essence, the character. So in a sense, I guess we could translate this as maybe mudslinging. Because what it means is to pick up your good character, your, your goodwill, the good things that you are doing, and go and throw it out in the garbage and the refuge and cover it with filth. It carries with it the idea of falsehood, of doing it falsely. When they would spurn Jesus' name, for instance, um, Jesus is doing a good thing. He's casting out demons and and changing people's lives. And the Jews that were there and watching this, they, 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 they couldn't deny the fact that something supernatural was happening. So rather than believing in Jesus and what he said... They said, well, obviously, this is the power of Beelzebul that you cast the demons out. They took what Jesus was doing for good, and they spurned it as evil. And that's exactly what it means. It is to turn it around, to put a twist on it, to turn it and make it something that is evil. Later on, they're going to do the same thing to the apostles. The apostles are going to be, or the disciples are going to be out preaching, and they're going to take some of, they can't get the apostles, they left, but they get some of the disciples, they pull them up in front of the magistrate and they say these guys have turned the world upside down and they've brought this heresy here and all the guys are doing is sharing the gospel so that people can have eternal life and not go to an eternity in hell that's good but you see they spurn what they're doing and turn it into something that is evil these are the ways that the world is going to take what 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 the disciples what the apostles what the church does and turn it upside down and make it something evil Just like right now, brothers and sisters, if we stand up for what Scripture says, then we're considered to be evil. Pretty soon we're going to be accused of hate crimes if we're just sharing the gospel because of the exclusivity of that gospel. Well, anyway, Jesus ends this verse by telling us the reason why this is happening. Why is the world going to hate you? I mean, what did you do? You just got born again. So why does the world all of a sudden hate you? Well, Jesus makes it clear it is on account of the Son of Man. Now, you know the title, Son of Man, was Jesus' favorite title for himself. But it refers to Jesus in the overall concept 
of God's redemptive plan. I used to use the word cosmic Christ until the heretics stole it and put a different meaning on it, so I can't say that anymore. But what it means is Jesus in the concept of the entire redemptive plan of God that was established before the foundations of the world. Since Genesis 3.15, it has been in the works, the whole covenantal system brought to its consummation in Jesus Christ, who then goes to the cross, who wins our own salvation, gives us his perfect righteousness goes into the tomb resurrected on the third day ascends to heaven is at the right hand of God right now and will come again another day in power and glory to bring us to himself that is the son of man now because of that Jesus says the world is going to hate you because it hates me they are going to hate you he goes on in John and says the world cannot hate you but it hates me why because I testify that its works are evil. And so he goes on in in the 15th chapter, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. And finally, they hated me without a cause. You know, these are peppered all the way through the gospels. Jesus telling us that the world hates him. And so this is one of the first things that a budding evangelist needs to learn. You need to learn. That when you go out there and you share the gospel and someone hates you and excludes you and reviles you and spurns your name as evil, well, it's not really you that they're doing that to. It's the gospel. It's Jesus. I mean, you can have a perfectly congenial conversation with a whole bunch of people about a higher power and religion in general. But as soon as you begin to talk about Jesus... As soon as you begin to talk about the necessity of a sacrificial atonement. As soon as you begin to say that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And the exclusive path to heaven. That's when the claws and the fangs come out. You will find yourself embroiled in an argument because people hate Jesus. Right? Hates him for who he is. And that's the reason for the hatred. Okay. So, that's the establishment. That is... As we have seen in each one of these, uh, of these Beatitudes, that's the state of thanks, okay? Now, still, we have a little bit of difficulty in understanding why that's blessed. I mean, who really wants to be hated? Maybe Scrooge or the Grinch who stole Christmas or people like that, but even people who are evil, like to be liked by other people who are evil. You know, to, to be respected by other people who are evil. So who actually wants to be hated, but yet Jesus says, not only is it a good thing, but you're blessed when you are. Well, he's going to try to explain why well, He's not going to try. He's going to explain it. I'm going to try to explain it in what he says next in the 23rd verse. Rejoice in that day. And leap for joy. Rejoice in that day. This is something, brothers and sisters, that you may leave here this morning intellectually understanding because I've portrayed it intellectually to you. But this is so much easier said than done. This is a difficult thing for us to do. It is so difficult for us to truly rejoice in that day. Because what day is it? What day is Jesus talking about when he says rejoice in that day? He's not talking about the end of time. He's not talking about when all trials are behind you. He's not talking about when you're in heaven and there's nothing but bliss and glory. He's talking about the day that the world hates you. 
He's talking about the day that they, they exclude you, that they revile you, and that they spurn your name as evil. In that day, rejoice. So the word rejoice, well, it's pretty straightforward. Root rejoice simply means to, um, it's a state of happiness or well-being. And again, it's another one of those state of being um, words. It, it, it's, it's a thing that you do and, and that you will accomplish in that particular time. So rejoice in that day. But let's dig a little bit deeper and see what it means in its context. What it means, obviously, first of all, is that we are to rejoice regardless of our circumstances. That's what that in that day means. In the day of persecution. Along with persecution, brothers and sisters, whether it's physical, whether it's mental, whether it's financial, whether it's emotional, regardless of whatever the persecution is, there's suffering that goes along with it. And when suffering occurs, there are negative emotions and feelings that come out of it and difficulties to deal with that. So Jesus is saying that the kind of rejoicing that I'm talking about. The kind of rejoicing that I'm telling you to do is something that is not dependent upon your circumstances. In fact, it transcends those circumstances. I'm not going to say that your circumstances don't have any impact on this because they have an impact on you, but not the rejoicing, not the kind of joy that Jesus is talking about. It is completely independent and not dependent Upon your circumstances. Now, once again, if you really want to find the value, if you really want to find the treasure, you have to dig a little bit for it. I know that a lot of you hate the word grammar, but we're going to have to go into the grammar because it's in the grammar actually that we will find the real beauty of what Jesus is saying. The word rejoice is what is known as an imperative. And what that means is that it's a command. This is not Jesus saying, you know something, hard times are coming, and I really hope you'll be able to keep a stiff upper lip and make your way through it. And that's not what he's saying. This is a command. In fact, it's the only command in the Beatitudes. And, and just as an aside, I, I don't have time to go into this right now, but just as an aside, I will follow up on the after church a little bit in this. Um, there's a comparison here between Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with the law to present it to God's people and Jesus coming down from the mountain to present the law in a New Testament context to the people. Well, when Moses comes down, there's nothing but commandments, ten commandments. Thou shalt, thou shalt not, not. Thou shalt not. When Jesus comes down, it's all blessing. Blessed are you if all of these things are happen and there's only one command that he has. Rejoice. How do you do that? How is it possible for us to rejoice in this kind of a context even though we are told to do so? Oh, and by the way, we're not talking about subtle rejoicing. You know? We're not talking about sort of uh, under the, you know, the covers type of, okay, I'm really going to be happy now, but I'm just going to kind of grin and bear all the circumstances I'm going through. He's talking about real rejoicing, okay? The word that he uses, notice what he goes on. He says, rejoice and leap for joy. <laughs> that word is a word that describes a little lamb or a kid goat dancing around and frolicking. I can remember sitting on the, uh, on, on the guest house at, uh, at uh, Jephthah and Mitu's house. 
back when it was a single story, watching little lambs frolic in the courtyard in front of us. Have you ever seen a little lamb frolic? It's almost like their legs are made out of pogo sticks because they, they just go boring, 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 boring. And, and, and you look at them frolicking around the yard like that and you cannot help but rejoice. I mean, it's just like the most joyful thing you've ever seen. It's just beautiful. Well, that's, the, that's the word that he's using here. In fact, Luke only uses this word one other place in his gospel. Can you think of where that would be? One other place in his gospel uses the same word. When Mary with Jesus in her womb, walks into Elizabeth's house with John the Baptist in her womb. And that baby, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, leaps for joy. Okay? That's what the command is. Okay? Rejoice and leap for joy. An exuberant, an ecstatic kind of joy. So that's the real issue, isn't it? How do we have that kind of joy in the face of persecution. Once again, we have to dig into the grammar because the plot thickens or the puzzle gets even deeper. Because not only is the word rejoice an imperative, a command, but it's also in the passive voice. What does that mean? How do you get a command That's in the passive voice. Because the passive voice means that whatever it is, is acting upon you. You're not the one doing the acting. You're not the one achieving this. That whatever it is that you're talking about acts upon you. And so this kind of joy and this kind of rejoicing is not something that you can manufacture. It's not something that you can do in and of yourself. It's a gift. And it is a gift of God. God is the one who supplies you with the rejoicing that Jesus now commands you to do. So how does that work? How on earth can you follow a command to do something that is given to you that you can't manufacture on your own? Well, once again, I think Matthew can help us because Matthew kind of gives us a deeper picture. As you know, Matthew has eight Beatitudes rather than just the four that Luke does. But after Matthew gives us those eight, and the the last one is very similar, almost identical to this, a little bit more expansive. But the same idea, he he gives us that that same uh, command to rejoice. But then immediately following it, almost immediately, one verse in between, he says this, you are the light of of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you see what the command is? Do you see how you can follow a command and at the same time have it be something that is given to you? Because you see, what happens is that the enemy and the world and everything around us dumps the mud and the muck and the filth and everything he can think of upon your joy. But underneath that joy is your redeemed self. And what I mean by the redeemed self, this is the self that knows something that you've forgotten, brothers and sisters. Your redeemed self remembers where it came from. And your redeemed self 
knows where it's going. And you see, that's not deep under a whole bunch of garbage. That is not hidden by a basket. It is just like the light that Jesus is talking about in Matthew, just like that light, which is the light that is given to you. It's the light of Christ. It is the joy and the rejoicing of Christ. Just like that is not something you can manufacture. You can't manufacture the rejoicing either. But every single Christian, this is a message to Christians only, every single Christian inherent in their redeemed self has the rejoicing that Jesus is talking about. And the command is to free your redeemed self. And I know that that sounds new agey, you know, get in touch with your redeemed self and free it. But that's not the context that I'm talking about in it at all. You are given this joy, that leaping for joy, that rejoicing, that is passive. That is something that God has supplied for you. And what is it dependent on? Where you've come from? which is out of the city of destruction and an eternity in hell and damnation condemned for your sins. That's where you've come from. You've forgotten it, but your redeemed self hasn't. And where are you going? You're going to a place that is so glorious and so wonderful that you cannot even begin to comprehend it. You are headed towards the celestial city. Now, you forget about that because the troubles of the world come crowding in on you and you think about the the water and you begin to sink, right? But your redeemed self never forgets. Never, it's, it's always in the front of the consciousness. So brothers and sisters, we have to get that redeemed self up to where that redeemed self is closer to the surface so that we're remembering in our minds where we came from and we remember where we're headed. Because in those two ideas is unquenchable joy and rejoicing in Jesus Christ our Savior. Now I've got some... More to say about that, but let's go ahead and finish what Jesus says because that's the here and now part of it. There's a not yet part, all right? I mean, right? he says this is a day of, of rejoicing now in this persecution, but he gives us another reason for rejoicing now, and that's what's going to happen in the future. He says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, that means pay attention, look at this, don't forget it, your reward is great in heaven. There is a reward, a recompense. You see, if you lived your life with that so clearly in your vision, where you're headed, the promises that God has given you, the kind of eternity that you will spend, oh my goodness, everything that seems so important right now is just going to kind of shrink into the background because of the glory of where God has got you on the road to going. There is treasure. That is stored up for you. Now, Dr. Sproul makes this point in his commentary that a lot of people think that we're all going to be exactly the same in heaven, that that there's the same reward for everyone. Well, that's not what Jesus teaches. Jesus teaches that there is treasure that we build up. He says this elsewhere in the moment, uh, in the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think we could turn that around and also say where your heart is, that's where your treasure is going to be. And there is such treasure stored up for those who are faithful to the word of God in heaven. 
Paul puts it so beautifully in 1 Corinthians when he says that I has not seen, nor has the ear heard, nor has the heart of man imagined what God has in store for those who love him. Now, brothers and sisters, that should bring you joy. That should bring you a rejoicing regardless of what your circumstances are. And that is exactly what Jesus is saying. So, one last statement in this. He says, for so their fathers did to the prophets. <laughs> There's always one of these slipped in there. You know, just the reality check, okay? Uh, first of all, remember, he's got his eyes on his disciples. He's fixed his gaze on the disciples. There's a huge crowd behind them. In the next segment, he's going to stop speaking directly to the disciples, and the crowd is going to be more in focus. But right now, I think the disciples are still there, and he's saying that you're about to enter the heritage of the prophets. All that the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 11 of Hebrews, that great cloud of witnesses and all of the the, the faithfulness that, that they had. You're about to enter into that realm. And as Paul said in the second chapter of Ephesians, that it will be the prophets and the apostles and upon their foundation, that is where God is going to build his church. And sure enough, when we see the celestial city to which we are headed in the book of Revelation, well, the gates and the pillars are named after the tribes, the, the, the 12 tribes and the apostles. And so, therefore, there's a heritage that you're about to enter into. But notice also that there's intense suffering. Because if you go back into, again, Hebrews 11 wasn't written now. But if you look at Hebrews 11, these guys were beaten. They were killed with the sword. They were burned. They were sought in two. They went through the most horrendous torture. And Jesus is telling these guys, this is your future. This is where you're going. This is the kind of persecution I'm talking about. But in that day, in the day when they're burning you at the stake, when they're running you through with spears, when they're sawing you in two, when they're doing everything you can imaginable, in that day, rejoice. Not because of what's happening to you, but because of where you came from. Because of where you're going. Those two things. Now, how do we put this into our, our own lives? How, how do we process this? Well, there's a point that I, I want to make because I think that we, we can, and I think there's a very simple way that we go about it. It's not, not anything new. But let me kind of see if I can put it into its perspective first. Um, I think the first thing that we have to do is to realize something. I know this is going to sound upside down, but this whole thing is upside down. I think the first thing that we need to understand is that we can't understand it. And, and that seems like a silly exercise. But what, what I'm saying is that we need to realize that we're looking at a paradox. And, and we're looking at something that defies understanding. That this kind of, 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 of joy is not natural. It's not natural for us to rejoice in the midst of... Of persecution. It is not natural. Jesus is going to, after he has this negative aspect of these same commands, he's going to get into that teaching where if somebody hates you, then love your enemies. If someone slaps you on the face, then turn the other cheek. 
That's not natural. I mean, when somebody slaps you on the cheek, what's the natural thing to do? Slap them back. When, when somebody insults you, what's the natural thing to do? Insult them back. Or at least be bitter and angry about it. It's not to, to rejoice in that. That's an unnatural situation. So here's my point. If we are going to have this kind of joy, you're not going to be able to look for it through natural means. It's got to be unnatural and actually supernatural. Okay? That's the only way you're going to have the kind of joy Jesus is talking about. It's because it has to be something that is indeed supernatural. And towards that end, we need to have a renewed perspective on things. We need to change our perspective. It's not a new perspective. It's just a renewed perspective. It's something that we already know. And it's something that our redeemed selves are completely aware of. But we just need to bring it to the the forefront of our minds. And the first thing is that we're not going to be able to look for this kind of joy in our emotions. You see, unfortunately, that's what so many people do. They read this and they say, rejoice in your circumstances. And so the circumstances come, you're in the middle of suffering, and you grit your teeth and you say, I am so rejoicing. That is not at all what Jesus is talking about. We know what he's talking about. He's talking about leaping for joy and rejoicing in your heart. That does not come super, I mean, naturally, and it cannot come from your emotions. Brothers and sisters, I'm not saying that there's not emotions in it. I'm not going to say that there's not a happiness and an emotion and joy. But if you base your rejoicing and you base your joy on your emotions, your emotions will fail you. Way too many people define their Christianity by saying, I feel. I feel this. I feel that. I feel so good when I go to church. I love the music. I get this spiritual high. And I need to go back every week in order to recreate that. This is not something that you do and you can't recreate it because you can't create it in the first place. But as soon as you head through some of those trials, just to bring Pilgrim's Progress back into this, as soon as you go through the slough of despond. As soon as you find yourself in the valley of humiliation or in um, uh, 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 the, the giant of despondency in his castle or any of these places, the valley of the shadow of death, when you find yourself in there, well, that's when your emotions are replaced with negative emotions, angry emotions, emotions that turn to God and say, God, how can you possibly do this to me? So your emotions will fail. So you can't find this joy in your emotions. That's just the wrong place to look. And, and, and you're not going to find it anywhere on this earth or anywhere in this world. I don't care where you turn. If you turn to people to try and find your strength and, and, and your joy, the people will fail you. If you turn to an institution or a government to try to find your joy, the government or the institution will fail you. If you try to turn to things, the things that we fill our lives with, and and we know better than this, but we still put such an emphasis on them, whether it is a career, whether it is money in the bank, whether it is our retirement, all taken care of, whatever it is, if you put your faith in that, then when the hard times come, when the persecution comes, all of that's going to fail you. If you put your joy in your intellect or the philosophies of this world or especially something like science, that's going to fall flat as soon as you hit the hard times. 
There's only one place, brothers and sisters, that you can put your trust. There's only one place where you can find the kind of supernatural joy that we're all looking for. The kind that Jesus has commanded us to do. And that is in the infallible, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word of God. We have to turn to what we know. Because only what you know will make it through persecution. Everything else is going to fail. And the only place that you can turn on this planet or any other planet to find something that is absolutely certain that you know is the word of God. Because that's the truth. And that's the only source of truth that we have. And so if you're really going to find the supernatural ability... You're going to have to turn to the Word of God. That's why I read you that passage from Christian, from Pilgrim's Progress, because that's what he's got in his hand. He's got the book. Brothers and sisters, it's the revealed Word of God that tells you where you're from. It's the revealed Word of God that tells you what you've been saved from. I mean, the scriptures are full of it, but I just want to read to you from Ephesians because it's one of the most famous passages that tells this and maps it out for us perfectly. You know this passage. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's the poverty that you existed in. That's the city of destruction. That's where you came from. He continues and he says, following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Brothers and sisters, that's where you're from. That's your heritage. You are from the city of destruction. You are condemned. You are damned. You are rightfully under the wrath of God, and you ought to spend an eternity in hell. But then Paul gives you one of the biggest buts in Scripture. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved. Do you see where you're from? Now, you've forgotten it. You don't carry that around in your head all day, every day. You're, you're, you're thinking about making a living. You're thinking about the troubles. You're thinking about the bills to pay. You're thinking about all this stuff. But your redeemed self has not forgotten and never does. Your redeemed self remembers where you're from. And it's right in the forefront. That's why your redeemed self rejoices and you don't. So free your redeemed self. Because if you can find that redeemed self and free it, then you're going to rejoice no matter what your circumstances are because you think of the punishment and the condemnation that you deserve. But because of the grace of God, you know this, don't you? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works so that no one can boast. That's where you're from, folks. And that's the great blessing that you have been given. And you can't think about it without rejoicing. Your redeemed self also knows where you're headed. And scripture continually tells you. Tells you how to get there. 
Tells you how to free yourself. Tells you how to free that redeemed self by scraping up all that dirt and following in a righteous life and the sanctification that God leads you in. But it also tells you where you're going. You see, it's the revelation of God that tells you from Jeremiah, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for a welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. That's what scripture tells you about where you're headed. Brother Clayton read earlier from 1 Peter. Let me, let me back up a few verses and, and, and listen to what he said. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance, here you go, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That is a promise, brothers and sisters, and your redeemed self never forgets that promise, lives in the presence of that promise, even though you forget it. So you got to free that redeemed self. you got to bring that up to the forefront because, you see, the redeemed self remembers what Scripture says. It says that we are going to stand before the throne of God in that great multitude with our palm branches and our white robes and our harps glorifying God for an eternity surrounded by the mighty angels. It tells us that we have a place at the wedding feast of the Lamb, that we are His bride, that we will be clothed in the white linen, which is the good deeds of the saints. It tells us that we will live in that place with Him for an eternity, a place where He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is what our Bible, our Word teaches us about where we're going and you simply can't keep that in mind and not rejoice. But that same revelation tells us that the Savior who died for us, who gave it all for you, went to the cross with your sins and paid for every single one of them, who lived a perfect life so that you don't have to, and then imputes that righteousness to you, dies on the cross, raised from the dead on the third day so that we will know without question that he is who he said he is and he did what he said he came to do and God accepted his sacrifice on your behalf, ascended to heaven and right now, King of kings and Lord of lords at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That same Lord who was there at the beginning when all things were created has promised you, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, down that road to the celestial city, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. That's what scripture tells you about where you're headed. And if that is in the forefront of every single move that you make and every plan that you make, it is going to cause you to rejoice even as your redeemed self does. As Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. And so the command to rejoice is not the command to manufacture this joy. It's just to move all the dirt away, all the filth of this world. To take that basket off your light 
so that your redeemed self, who never forgets where you've come from and never forgets where you're going, might rejoice. And that joy will pass over any circumstances that you have. So I want to leave you with a prayer and a question. The prayer comes from Habakkuk. I read it to the men yesterday in our men's breakfast. It's just beautiful. The question comes from John Bunyan. I think you know what it is. But here's what Habakkuk says after God gives him a vision just before the onslaught of the Babylonian invasion where all of his people and everything that he knows in life and loves will be obliterated. God gives him that vision, and then Habakkuk says this prayer. Though the fig tree should... Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food... The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So my question is simply this. Where are you from? And where are you going? Father, we're, uh, we're in awe of you and your word, your plan of salvation and all that you give us, your mercy and grace to take sinners like us. Uh, we complain when things go bad, and we think that we carry the world on our shoulder, and we don't realize that living inside of us, a gift that you have given us is this joy that is covered up by the things of this world, the cares and the worries of this world. Lord, we ask that you would... Teach us and help us to find, first of all, that redeemed self and then free it so that we might truly rejoice, not with our joy, but yours. The joy that you have given us, the joy that is resident inside of us that the enemy desires to keep covered and to destroy. Lord, we ask that this joy would be the joy that typifies us as Christians because this is the light that the world is just not ready for and doesn't know how to process. And that through that light, others might come to know you and give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.